We're turning this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 1. I often preach from Romans, and I often quote from the book of Romans for a number of reasons. One of which, and probably the chiefest reason why I quote so often from the book of Romans, is because whether I'm preaching to those that are dead in sin or preaching to those that know the Lord, I have one responsibility this morning, and that's to preach the gospel. I firmly believe that those that are saved, whose trust is already in Christ, they also need to hear the gospel. There's nothing quite like hearing the message of the gospel of Christ to warm the heart, to get our eyes back upon the work of, of Jesus Christ. I was thinking this morning of that passage in the Psalms where the psalmist says, My soul cleaves to the dust. My soul cleaves to the dust. There's nothing that can be prescribed for the soul that is cleaving to the dust more than the preaching of Christ. The two on the road to Emmaus, they were saved. They were disciples, Scripture says. They knew the Lord, and yet they were sad. They were discouraged. It wasn't until Christ came along and showed them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself that their testimony was, did not our hearts burn within us. And so I don't believe that the message of the gospel is only to be preached to those that are unsaved. Often those that even make professions of faith sometimes are still dead in their sins. So it's presumptuous for a man to get behind the pulpit and say, well, everyone here is saved so we can deal with this issue of how to raise your children or or this issue of, of how to act in the workplace. Oftentimes you hear messages that are focused upon these aspects, these these parts of life, and they give you great principles, but you walk away with this knowledge that I have to do this, 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 and this if I'm gonna know success in my week this week. I don't believe God's people are ever going to know success in any week unless their minds are fixed upon Christ, unless they're walking with the Savior. You think of Enoch. Enoch was translated. He was taken directly into heaven. Why was he taken directly into heaven? Because he walked with God. To know the Lord's presence, to know the Lord's nearness, to meditate upon his work and all that the Savior has done for you, That's the success. That's the key to success in the Christian life. And it's the same message that is preached to the unsaved that is to be preached and declared to God's people as well. And you'll you'll see that in this book, the book of Romans. That's why I often preach from Romans. And I have a quote here from Matthew Poole. I'll I'll give you a a quote in in a minute. To, uh, to remind us why we often go to Romans when we want to preach the gospel. But we're going to read Romans chapter 1 this morning. We're going to read down to uh, the section that deals with the gospel, down to verse 17, and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time uh, this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power 
according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom ye are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let, or the word there is hindered, I was hindered or let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 17 and trust that the Lord will bless this reading of his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. With the scriptures open before us, let's bow in a brief word of prayer. Our Father, we thank thee this morning for the gospel. We thank thee that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Lord, we rejoice this morning that our eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel and our need for Christ. Father, as we begin to make our way through this book, and as our minds are drawn out to meditate upon the gospel, we pray that the, the heart and soul of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ himself, will draw near to us. Father, we thank thee for the promised Holy Ghost. It's a promise. Just like every other gospel promise, it's a promise given to us, and we plead that promise this morning, that thou will give us the comforter, the Holy Ghost, to guide us in the truth of the word of God, to give us that power that is needed to declare the word of God. And Father, we pray that thou will keep us back from anything that would detract from the Lord's glory. Help us, Lord. Lord, draw near to us, we pray. Take thy word and drive it home to our hearts. And may we not soon forget the message that's preached today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I often quote from the book of Romans. Most of you that know that when I come to preach, at some point in the message, I'm going to be quoting from Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, or Romans chapter 5. There's a reason for that. The book of Romans, along with the book of Galatians, uh, is one of the books in the New Testament that focuses upon the specific aspects 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When someone asks you, you're a preacher of the gospel or you declare the gospel, what is the gospel? Most likely, in your explanation of the gospel and your desire to support that by quoting scripture, at some point you're going to be quoting from the heart of the book of Romans or the heart of the book of Galatians. The two, uh, those two epistles, New Testament epistles, are focused primarily on the aspects of the doctrines that are connected to the gospel. Matthew Poole, in his commentary uh, on the entire Bible, in the section where he's dealing with the book of Romans, says this, the subject matter of it seems to be much the same to the Galatians. The body of this epistle is partly doctrinal and partly practical. In the doctrinal part, the apostle handles that fundamental article of a sinner's justification in the sight of God. So that this epistle is the proper seat of that doctrine. And from hence, it is to be principally learned. If you're going to deal with the heart of the gospel, what exactly is the gospel? When we preach the gospel, what are we preaching? What are we declaring? Matthew Poole says that this book is going to be the main book that you go to to explain to people what you mean. That's why he says here, the proper seat. This epistle is the proper seat of that doctrine, the doctrine of justification. And from it, hence, uh, from hence, it is to be principally learned. If you're going to learn what it is to uh, be reconciled to God, what it is to be justified, to be declared righteous, that God can be just and still justify those that are ungodly, how is this great uh, how is this great doctrine to be understood? You're going to be coming to the book of Romans. That's why often when I preach, I come and deal with the main doctrinal sections of this book in dealing with justification, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. Now, when I was putting this, this message, we're thinking about what I wanted to prepare because I, I not only prepare messages for here, but I also have uh, several other places that I have to preach uh, over the coming month. This, this actually begins the slowdown period of my work in the landscaping, but then it also begins the, the speed up or the increase in the, uh, the, the preaching responsibilities that I have. As the landscaping slows down, I offer uh, my services to be able to go preach more often. And so I think over the next three months, including this message here, I think I have uh, two, four, six seven messages, seven Sundays that I got to be preaching between now and December, December, the second week of December. And so as I was thinking about what I wanted to study and, and perhaps uh, begin a, a series, I thought, well, I often quote Romans, but I've actually never put an outline together on the book of Romans. And uh, it actually was, uh, as I was putting this outline together, I actually thought there's no reason why I shouldn't do this to every book. Why shouldn't I go through every book and, and just leave the commentaries aside? I told the Walters today, if you, if you put an outline together on a book while you're reading a commentary, that's cheating. Right? You can't cheat. You got to, and, and I think it's, 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 uh, it's best to try to work through passages yourself before you even go to the commentaries. I can't tell you how many times I was reading a verse and I felt like the Lord wanted me to preach on that verse. And then I grabbed the index to Spurgeon's sermons. Oh, Spurgeon preached on this message. And once you read a message by Spurgeon on that verse, 
you really can't come up with a different outline, right? I mean, you're pretty much saying, well, that's good, but I've got a better outline than you, Mr. Spurgeon. You know, there's a reason why they call him the Prince of Preachers. So what you should probably do is work on the text yourself and then use these other men as references or as helps. And so I thought, well, why not go through the book of Romans and outline the book of Romans? And so that's what I did in the last several uh Sundays during the adult Sunday school class, I actually have played hooky, and I go into the library, although I can't even go into the library in our church anymore because uh, the, uh, the fall Sunday school program has started back up, and now uh, our pastor teaches the college kids in that library. So I'm actually in the seminary room, and I'm, I've been going through, during that period of time, just going through and working on messages that I have to preach uh, during my next few months. And I, I started to work on this outline of the book of Romans. And uh, I trust that over the next uh, times that I come to preach, that we'll just continue in our study of the book of Romans. And so I, I, I began to read through the book and I started to outline different sections of the book. And I came up with an outline for the book uh, and I think it's a, it's a good way to approach uh, the, the whole theme of the book of Romans. What is the theme of the book of Romans? Well, like Matthew Poole said, it mainly deals with the way in which a sinner is declared just before God. It deals with the heart of the gospel. And so every aspect of this book has some connection to the gospel in very unmistakable terms. And it does us good to meditate upon the gospel. As a matter of fact, this book is written to those that already know the Lord. You remember in verse 8 of the passage that we read in chapter 1, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It isn't just that they were saved. They had a testimony around the world that they knew the Lord. So if ever there was a people that were declared in the word of God as, as saints and, and those that knew the Lord. It's these to whom Paul is writing. And yet, what does he say down in verse 15? So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. This answers the argument that someone may raise that you preach the gospel to the unsaved, but then you try to get more practical to those that are saved. That's not the way the, the Apostle Paul operated. The Apostle Paul saw, yes, the greatest need for those that are dead in sins, that don't, that don't know the Lord, that are still alienated from God. Yes, the, the most important thing for them is to hear the message of the gospel. But when Paul wanted to summarize what he would be doing among those that already had a strong testimony, what was it? I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are in Rome also. They're already saved. And so a, a study through the book of Romans which deals with the gospel, it isn't just a, a path down which we take those that are unsaved. You've often heard the, the expression, take them down the Romans road. Well, the Romans road is not a road that you only go down one time. As God's people, we need to be continually going down the Romans road to consider what Christ has done for us. Yes, set the merits of Christ before the eyes of those that are dead in sin. Preach the gospel to those that are still dead in sin. 
But preach the gospel to those who have to wake up every Monday morning and realize that there's a battle to be fought. There's a, 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 a life to be lived. There's no greater motivation to live the Christian life than to set Christ before those that already know him. That their hearts would be revived and, and their, their souls would be quickened as they meditate upon the gospel. And so I want to I take, as I said over the next so many times that I'm here to preach, I want to take the time to go through the book of Romans and to consider the theme as well as just a general outline. It's, more, it's not really an outline per se. It's just breaking down the book into sections. So usually I do outlines where I do Roman numerals, but I, I don't think I can count up to whatever it is. 13 in Romans, Roman numerals, and you'll get lost on the numbers anyway. So we're, we're just going to go through these sections. It won't, it won't correspond to the number of messages I'm preaching anyway because I very rarely get through a message that I have prepared in one sitting. So if I, if I numbered them, then it would end up getting messed up anyway. So we're just going to do our best to go through this outline of the book of Romans. Remember that the book of Romans deals with the gospel. If you can remember that, deals with the message of the gospel, then every aspect, every section uh, that Paul writes has some connection to the gospel. And so I'll, I'll give you the outline for the book that I have written here, and then we'll begin by dealing with the introduction of the first part, uh, mainly that section uh, that we read. Actually, we won't even deal with that whole section. We'll only deal with uh, probably down uh, to verse 7 today. But uh, I'll give you the outline, and you can meditate on that and think it through, and you'll see that whether, to quote Matthew Poole, whether you're dealing with the doctrinal aspect or the practical aspect, you can't separate practical Christian living from the gospel. There's a reason why the practical sections of the book of Romans come on the heels of those great doctrinal sections. You can't properly show Christian love in regard to your liberty that you have in Christ unless you understand what the Lord has done for you. You, you, you can't relate to the civil government. You can't relate to the authority that's over you unless you understand what Christ has done for you in the gospel. You can't love the brethren the way you're supposed to love the brethren unless you understand what the Lord has done for you in the gospel. So the, the practical sections are, are connected to the doctrinal sections. As a matter of fact, you, you can make the argument that you can't separate one from the other. You have to deal with the doctrine in order to receive the practical instruction as to how to live the Christian life. If you're trying to live the Christian life and you're not pleading the blood over your sins, if you're trying to live the Christian life and you're not meditating upon the fact that as far as the east is from the west, so far as the, hath the Lord removed our transgressions from us, you're, you're, you're going to fall flat on your face. If you don't remind yourself of the promises that the Lord has given in the gospel, you're going to be floundering in the Christian life. That's the heart of our experience, is pleading the promises, getting back to what the Lord has covenanted with us as God's people in the gospel. And so I say that the, the practical sections are connected to the doctrinal sections. It all, this whole book, if you, if you think of, of a wheel, every, every spoke that comes from the hub 
has that connection to the hub, which is the gospel, whether you're dealing with justification or Christian liberty or sanctification or the work of the spirit, they're all connected to the gospel, the message of the gospel. And so the outline that I've drawn up is uh, as follows. The first section in this book is just the, the section down to verse 7, which is I've referred to as the introduction, which is the exalting of the gospel. Paul mentions in that early section in verse 1 that he separated unto the gospel. And then you have this parenthesis, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Okay, so now he's beginning to say, look, I've been separated unto the gospel to preach the gospel, and that gospel is concerning his son. Now, right from the very beginning, you know, Paul is saying, this is what I preach. This is the gospel. And so he begins uh, to elevate that theme. This is what I'm about. I've never met you before. I've never seen you. I wanted to come to you, but I was hindered. And he actually goes on to say that it was a good thing that I was hindered because now you've had an opportunity to live the Christian life a little longer. You've had the opportunity to be a testimony and you've had an opportunity to grow. So even though I've wanted to be with you, I haven't seen you yet. I want to be with you yet. I'm thankful that I haven't because now you you and I, we can have fellowship and we can encourage one another and we can strengthen one another. But right from the very beginning, Paul's saying, This is the message that I'm preaching, the message of the gospel. So the exalting of the gospel is the introduction. Taking that the message and setting it up, saying this is what I'm about. Then in verses 8 through 16, you have Paul's life, which is the experience of the gospel. There's a very clear uh, change in the way Paul's writing. Because in verse 8, look at how many times you find the word I mentioned. First, I thank my God. Okay, now it's more than, more than just saying, this is what I preach. This is the message I've been separated. Now this is my experience. Okay, Paul's life, the experience of the gospel. First, I thank my God. Verse 9, I serve God as my witness, whom I serve with my... And all the eyes, just go right down, verse 10, I. Verse 11, I, I, all the way down to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Then he begins to deal with what's going on in the world. But that section from verse 8 to 16 is Paul's life, which is the experience of the gospel. So you have the exalting of the gospel. This is, this is the primary message that I'm preaching. Then you have the experience of the gospel where Paul's saying, this is what I'm about. And then you have Paul's message, which is the exposition of the gospel. It actually begins in verse 16, uh, the second part of verse 16. And actually runs all the way down into chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, It's the exposition of the gospel. Uh, He's expositing the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. Uh, That's his message. This is what, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is what I'm, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome. Why am I preaching the gospel? When we get to that section, uh, that's uh, an easy outline to remember in that section. Uh, what is the gospel? It's the power of God into salvation. Why is the gospel the power of God into salvation? Because the righteousness of God is revealed. Why is the righteousness of God revealed? Because God's angry with sin. The wrath of God is revealed. This is, this is the exposition of the gospel. This is where Paul begins to expound the word. And he actually goes into uh, chapter 2 and actually begins to apply uh, that, those statements 
that he made to both Jews and Gentiles. And, and so in chapter 2, verse 11, you find the end of that section of the exposition of the gospel. But then in, in chapter 2, verse 12, all the way down uh, through chapter 3, uh, all the way down to the end of chapter 3, you have Jews and Gentiles, the recipients of the gospel. And there's specific application made to each one, to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. The Jews were very much aware that there was a difference. God set his love upon the Jews. He gave them the revealed word of God. He revealed the gospel to them as a nation. By and large, the rest of the world was in darkness. That, that group of people outside of Israel are known as the Gentiles. So you have the Jews that received the promises that had the oracles of God given to them, had revealed in those scriptures the gospel of Christ and the promise of Christ. That was mainly given to the Jews, and the rest of the world was in darkness. And so Paul makes that very clear. He begins that section by saying, uh, these are the sins of the Gentiles, and, and, and goes through the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, dealing with, with the sins of the Gentiles. Then he says, there's, not much, there's no, not much difference between Jew and Gentile, because the very ones that... that that know the law are committing the same things. They're breaking the law the same way. So just because you had the law given to you, and just because you were a privileged nation, doesn't by any means make you exempt from the judgment of God. And so Paul says, Jews and Gentiles both need to hear the message of the gospel. And he deals with that mainly through the, the chapter 2 into the first part of chapter 3, and then gives an overview of exactly what the gospel is in chapter 3. Then from chapter 4 on, you're dealing with the specific doctrines related to the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 21, which is the end of the chapter, you have justification, which is the heart of the gospel. What is it about the message of the gospel that we're preaching? We're preaching that God can be just and still justify the ungodly. Paul goes to different examples in the Old Testament, David and Abraham, and shows that they weren't saved because they kept the law. They weren't saved because they were circumcised. They were saved because their trust was in the promise that was given of a coming Savior. That's Chapter 4 and chapter 5 deals with this heart of the gospel, which is justification. Chapter 6 deals with union with Christ, which is the life of the gospel. Being joined to Christ. That's the, 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 the life of the Christian. The power that is given uh, to the Christian is tied up in our union with Christ. Chapter 7 deals with sin, which is the enemy of the gospel. Paul deals with that remaining corruption that's still, even though we're justified and we're declared righteous, that righteousness is not seen in us. That righteousness is seen in Christ. It's imputed to us. Well, just because we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us doesn't mean we're perfect. In our experience, we still sin. And Paul deals with that in chapter 7. It's not... Uh, it, a Christian does not look at his Christian life and expect to see perfection. Paul himself said that the very things that he desires to do, he doesn't do. And the very things that he, he doesn't want to do, they're the things that he does. And he actually cries out, O wretched man that I am. This is Paul. After just dealing with the great doctrines of justification and union with Christ, Paul says, even though I am saved and I'm justified and declared righteous, I still deal with sin. 
And so every, every believer has to understand that in their walk with the Lord and in their understanding of the gospel, there is still remaining corruption and sin that needs to be fought against. And you deal with that in chapter 7. Sin is the enemy of the gospel. Then you have the spirit, which is the help of the gospel. The Lord himself says, I'll give you another comforter, another helper, one that can come alongside to help. And chapter 8 deals with the work of the spirit, which is the help of the gospel. Chapter 9 deals with the great doctrine of election, which is the plan of the gospel. This outworking of, of the conversion of sinners and as as. As years go by and, and the gospel continues to go out and sinners are being saved, it's not just that we go out and preach and hope that the Lord has some people that he's going to save. The apostle says, now, I just want you to understand that, yes, we preach the gospel, but the reason, one of the reasons why we preach the gospel is because the Lord has already chosen his people and they will be saved. This isn't just... Oh, well, if I don't preach the gospel well enough, or if I don't do this or that well enough, no one's going to get saved. The apostle says this, the, the souls that come to Christ, it's all part of God's plan for salvation. When Christ came into the world, he came into the world in relation to a covenant. God the Father covenanted with Christ that if you make your soul an offering for sin, if you will take human flesh and go into the world and suffer and bleed and die on behalf of those people, I will give you a people. Those people will be saved. And when Christ came into the world, therefore, and he suffered upon the cross, it wasn't in hopes of saving a people. I hope some people will believe this message. Christ went to the cross with us in mind. Because before the foundation of the world, we were already given to Christ in salvation, in election should say in salvation we actually in our experience there is a time where we come to Christ but in the electing purpose the plan of God there's a people that have already been given to Christ and Paul makes that that argument in Romans chapter 9 he uses Jacob and Esau as a great example of that before the children were ever born before they had ever done good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand it was said the elder shall serve the younger. Before they ever did anything, before they were ever born, the Lord already said the elder is going to serve the younger. Why? Because the younger was chosen. He wasn't even born yet. He didn't even do anything. <clears throat> and actually, if you had waited until after he was born, you probably would have said, I want the older one. Because the younger one, Jacob, was a scoundrel before the Lord saved him. But the Lord says, no, this is my plan. This is my purpose in election. The elder shall serve the younger. So that, that section, Romans chapter 9, is dealing with election, which is the plan of the gospel. Chapter 10 deals with preaching, which is the spread of the gospel. Why do we preach? Why do we preach? It's dealt with in, in Romans chapter 10, preaching the spread of the gospel. Chapter 11 deals with Israel, the promise of the gospel. There is a promise that's made to national Israel. There's different opinions on exactly uh, to what extent that promise uh, reaches in our day, and we'll deal with that down the road when we come to, to chapter 11, but uh, the Lord has not cast away his people. Simply because Israel has rejected Christ as a nation doesn't mean that Jews can't be saved. To them have been given the promises, and Paul makes that very clear. The Lord still, the, the promise to Israel is still good, and there are still Still Jews being saved. Now, we're living in the time of the fullness of the Gentiles. That's true. Most of the people that are being saved are Gentiles. But 
The Lord has not cast away his people. And so Israel, dealing with Israel, is still dealing with the promise of the gospel. Then in chapter 12, we're dealing with service, which is the work of the gospel. In chapter 12, dealing with the Christian life and our service for the Lord, the work of the gospel. Chapter 13 deals with submission. It's actually the passage that deals with the civil government. And in that, we see the proof of the gospel. What's one of the proofs that we know the Lord? Well, we submit to authority. We submit. The ungodly, they are the ones that rebel. They're the ones that that are anarchists. God's people understand that the Lord has put civil government here for a reason. And if anyone in this world should have a proper view of government, no matter how corrupt that government may be, it's God's people. Paul begins by saying, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. So uh, submission to authority is a proof of the gospel. Then chapter 14 through chapter 15 deals with the issue of Christian liberty, which I've referred to as the love of the gospel. The love of the gospel. We've been set at liberty in some of these issues that we deal with in life, while in ourselves we may not have an issue with them, yet because some of God's people struggle with these issues, then the, the primary one that comes to mind is, is drinking of alcohol. Uh, the official policy of our denomination is that it's not sin to drink. It's not sin to drink. Some people think that our denomination makes it clear it's sin to drink alcohol. We, we say it's not sin to drink, but because alcohol has been so abused and because the Lord saves drunkards, we willfully abstain from the drinking of alcohol in order to benefit or encourage those that may have come to the Lord from that background. There's nothing more discouraging than being around uh, someone who says that they're one of God's people and they say, well, I don't struggle with this and I don't really care whether you do. I'm going to do this and because I, I'm at liberty. I've got liberty to do this. And because of your liberty, you destroy the walk of someone for whom Christ has died. Paul deals with that in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Personally, and we'll get to this when when we come to that section, personally I believe you can make the argument that God's people shouldn't drink. I think it's it's very strong, a very strong argument in the scriptures. Uh, It always grieves me to hear people that deal with Christ's making the water into wine and they say that he made alcoholic, alcoholic wine Uh, I I believe there's a very sound argument that can be made from that very passage and from other passages that what Christ made was not alcohol. It was not alcohol. And I don't believe that God's people should touch the stuff. So we can have differing views as to uh, the outworkings of this. But as a free Presbyterian member, we all agree to willfully abstain, whether you believe it's sin or not. You're still going to abstain. Why? Because Christ has, has given us liberty to serve. Don't use the liberty to destroy your brother. He deals with that in chapter 14 and 15. And that's why I say Christian liberty is the love of the gospel. There are things that in our liberty, you never hear this part of Christian liberty, in our liberty we choose to give it up. You only ever hear from people the liberty to do it. Well, guess what? I'm free to serve the Lord. That means I'm free to be able to withhold certain things in my walk with the Lord for the blessing and benefit of of others for whom Christ has died. That's true love. 
of Christ. It's not just love of the brethren. It's love of Christ. Because Christ died for them. And why do I want to see that brother stumble and fall in their walk with the Lord if Christ died for them? I want to magnify the work of Christ. And by so doing, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure I'm not a stumbling block for the weaker brother. That's Christian liberty. And it's a big section of this this book, two whole chapters that, for the most part, there are other things dealt with in those chapters, but for the most part, it's dealing with our liberty that we have in Christ. And then the last chapter, a lot of names, salute this person, salute that person. I've entitled that Fellowship, the Family of the Gospel. The Family of the Gospel. It's, it's uh, sometimes when you're younger in the faith and you read Romans 16, it's like, well, I don't need to read that because it's, you know, salute so-and-so and say, in other words, in our day today, we'd say, say hi to this person, say hi to that person. But, you know, after you read that section, you realize Paul hadn't even seen them. He hadn't even been there yet. And look at the connections that he has in the work of the Lord. He's praying for them. He's laboring in prayer for them. Never even met them. And yet he goes down all these names in chapter 16. What's that tell you? That tells you Paul loved these people. He cared about them so much that having not even met them, he's like, say hi to them for me. Tell, tell them I'm praying for them. Encourage them in the Lord. You know, we, we have so much that the Lord has blessed us with in the gospel. You can deal with these doctrinal sections. There are... There are there, let me put it this way. There, there's the, there is the, the danger of only focusing upon the doctrine that you miss these practical sections. I say that because a lot of times in churches, you have people that say, oh, so-and-so is wrong on this doctrine. So-and-so is wrong on this doctrine. I'm going to have nothing to do with them. Not only that, but every opportunity I have, I'm going to bash them because they're wrong on this doctrine or on that doctrine. Okay, there, are, there are doctrines that deal with the heart of the gospel that you don't have the right to be wrong on. Okay? There are other things that God's people have disagreed with for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen, even in our own denomination, those that are going to hold the line on this doctrine, even if it means bashing Ministers are bashing brethren. We've had people leave our denomination because they disagree with this doctrine or that doctrine. And it's not a major doctrine. It's okay to disagree on these things. Just had a, a person resign from our, our church up in, in Greenville over one of these areas. One of the things that was, was cited was one of these doctrines that we already said we, will, we can give liberty of conscience on. And yet drew the line on that doctrine so hard that he ended up leaving the church, even though we're supposed to have liberty of conscience. We're supposed to show grace to each other. The Apostle Paul never even met these people, and yet he has such a love for the brethren. So you don't want to, you don't want to overlook the practical aspects of loving the brethren for the sake of focusing only on those doctrinal sections that you find in the book of Romans. If you understand the doctrinal sections properly, it should lead you to the love of the brethren that Paul has. Right? I mean, otherwise Paul is wrong. Like, this is, this is what Paul's saying. 
Because I'm justified, because I have the Spirit, because the, the work of the Spirit is constantly going on in my life in, in sanctification, because of all these things, therefore, I know how to view the government. I know how to view Christian liberty. I know how to view the brethren. If your view of the brethren is different than the Apostle Paul's that you find at the end of the book of Romans, maybe you're not really focusing on the doctrinal sections to begin with. If you understand justification and adoption and sanctification the way you should, then you should love the brethren. You should have a desire to overlook some things that are non-essentials. It's the, whole, the reason why the whole fundamentalist movement started. We look at the fundamentalist movement today and say, oh, it's an extremely exclusive mo- movement. They're hyper-fundamentalists, hyper and they, they want to they wanna cross swords with everybody and, and cut everyone out from their denominations and their groups. That's not why it was started. You started. When you study the history of the fundamentalist movement, it was actually a movement which wanted to include as many as possible. That's why they wrote up the fundamentals. We can disagree on some of these other things, but these are the fundamentals. And it dealt with the heart of the gospel. I think the argument can actually be made unless you call... If you don't call yourself a fundamentalist, you're not a Christian. Because it deals with the heart of the gospel, the fundamentals. Some of these other things, that's why... You know, when, when, when a lot of our young people want to go to university in, in some of our churches, we send them to Bob, to Bob Jones. Well, historically, Bob Jones has differed on their view of doctrine in a lot of areas from our denomination. Why is it that Dr. Paisley could have such fellowship with Dr. Bob? There are guys connected to the university that I have spoken to that rip Calvinism to shreds. I've spoken to them. Had conversations with them. They're, they're ripping Calvinism to shreds and they're having this conversation with me. Not even, not, unbeknownst to them that I'm, a, I'm, I'm reformed in my doctrine. Right? We just had a, a church right around the corner from us where we live. For like two months, they had uh, on, their, on their sign, Baptist, not Protestant. Before that, for about two months, they had a sign, not Calvinist. That was the sign of their church. I said to my boys, I was like, when you guys get older and you go to your church with your families, please tell the people they have a sign to not have a message which is negative. Tell people what you believe, not what you're not. Right? For like two months, this church said, not Calvinist. So they're blasting Calvinism. They're blasting Calvinism. And historically, some of these men connected to the university have, have swung the sword like that. And yet someone like Dr. Paisley still had... A great relationship with Bob Jones. Why? Because Dr. Paisley and Bob Jones understood, yeah, we may differ on some of these things, but as far as the preaching of the gospel goes, we see the need. Dr. Bob saw Dr. Paisley preaching the gospel, and he he got thrown into prison because of that. And he said, I'm going to go stand with him. He went over there, and it became a public thing that Bob Jones Jr. is standing with Ian Paisley. Did they agree on everything? No. But they agreed on the fundamentals. And sometimes I think even in a, in a denomination which doesn't have that Arminian influence or, or the Baptist influence that wants to separate itself from our roots, which is Protestantism, sometimes I think in our own denomination we need to get back to understanding, yes, there are fundamental issues. That if you disagree with I, I preached a message a couple months ago from, from the pulpit. I said I didn't agree with our minister on baptism. 
I told, I told the people, I said, you don't have to agree with him on everything. I said, I don't agree with him on baptism. And I said, but I love him, and I pray every night with my family that the Lord would fill him with the power of the Holy Ghost when he preaches the gospel. You don't got to agree with everyone all the time. But it bothers me that some of these things that are not the heart of the gospel become so divisive that it'll split a denomination right down the middle. And then someone else that comes along preaching the gospel, well, then you got to get the, the, the microscope out. you got to get the magnifying glass and go down every one of their doctrines. And boy, if they're off on one, I can't have fellowship with you. That, do you read the book of Romans and think that's what the apostle Paul did? Paul didn't even know these people. And yet he was rejoicing in their testimony that they had for Christ. I, just, I, I think that if you properly understand the doctrinal sections of the book of Romans and are meditating upon that, and the joy of the Lord is your strength, and the, and the work of Christ is, is, is ever new to you, You're, it's fresh. You, you, you wake up in the morning and you plead the blood over the day, and you rejoice in the gospel and you go out. I, I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think you can go from that into bashing God's people. I, I don't think the two are compatible. But I do believe it's possible that if you forget or are not meditating upon the gospel, that you can bash anyone. I bash my wife when I'm not walking with the Lord, let alone God's people. I know very, very easily if I'm not thinking upon what I need to be thinking upon, I'm, I'm one of the most miserable people to be around. Because I can be critical. I can, be, I can go on the offensive. I can even start using standards judging people I don't even judge myself by. If you know the doctrines, the essential doctrines of the faith, it should result in a love for Christ and a love for the brethren. I think that's what Paul argues here in the whole second section of this book. The, the, the doctrines, these doctrines are supposed to have implications. They're supposed to affect us in the Christian life. And this is our approach, not only to the world, but to God's people. When was the last time you sat down and, and thought through? Make, make a list like Paul made in Romans 16. And write all the people that you're thankful for. Now I'm saying this to myself because this is just coming into my head. I think it would do us good. I think it would do us good. Because as you're writing the names of these people, you can pray for them. And you may not agree with them on everything, but you pray. And then you begin to, it just, it just naturally brings you into that ground of commonplace that you have in the gospel. You start thinking through these names and, and, and events come to mind. Things that have happened in the past where you, you can rejoice and, and think through all the things that the Lord... We forget those things, right? We forget about what the Lord has done, not only in our lives, but the lives of God's people. We forget Christ. We forget Christ. Why do you think the Lord told us to keep the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me, because we forget. And maybe it would be good for us just to go down the list and, and, and write it when we pray almost every night, unless, unless the kids are throwing a fit and my wife says, just, just you pray tonight, dear. But uh, almost every night we go down the current and just take the next name, the next name of the ministers in our denomination. I don't like a lot of those men as far as going out to eat with them. I wouldn't hang out with them. Their personalities are not like the kind of personalities that I like. But you know what? If you go down the list and you pray for those men, 
The Lord takes the sword out of your hand. It's happened to me on a number of occasions. I can't tell you how often I had bitterness against someone because of something that they did that I thought was stupid, right? Or they made a mistake. They did something that they shouldn't have done in the past. And years later, I still am holding something against them. When you go down and start praying for them on a regular basis, you find that the, your whole approach in dealing with that person changes. You actually begin to pray that the Lord bless their ministry. It changes everything. And that's what Paul does. That's what, you know, there were people that, that spoke evil about Paul and they're bashing Paul. And he says, you know what? As long as the gospel is being preached, for therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I'm glad that the gospel is being preached. Maybe that's something you can do. I, I didn't intend to speak as much on, on the fellowship part. We, we'll deal with that as we, as we go through. But what I want you to understand is, yes, in dealing with the heart of the gospel, this is the book that we come to. This is the seat of that doctrine, to quote Matthew Poole. This is where, this in, in Galatians is where we come to explain justification and what it means to exercise faith in Christ and what that results in. And, and the work of grace and adoption and all these great doctrines are there. But don't only camp out in Romans, Romans 3 through 8 or Romans 3 through 9. Understand that if you're meditating upon these things, the practical aspects of the gospel <clears throat> will be seen as well. So we'll deal with some of these things tonight. I'm just dealing with the outline. There's a lot of points there. Um, I, was, I started with three E's, and I quickly realized if I was going to have 12 points, I, I'm not going to think up enough words that have E. I hate alliterating because what ends up happening is you end up using a word that you really don't mean, and it doesn't entirely fit, but you're going to use it because it starts with the same letter. So I don't, uh, I'm not polished when it comes to those kind of outlines. So I'll, I'll look at it, and I'll say this is the word. It's whether it starts with a P or an H, or at least the first three start with an E. So I, I guess I'm a partial alliterator, kind of like some people refer to themselves as two-point Calvinists. I'm a partial alliterator, not a full alliterator. Some men, some men, they have an ability to do it. John Greer used to do it all the time. The thing is, I'd look at the word and I'd say, yeah, that's the word. Like he would come up with the right word and somehow it started with the same letter. I, I've never been able to do that. So it may not be easy to remember the outline, but... I think the sections of the book are broken up in, in, these, in these sections that the themes are accurate and the whole thrust of the book deals with the gospel. So tonight we'll actually spend some time uh, in, in verses 1 through 7 dealing with the exalting of the gospel in the introduction. Paul makes some statements at the very beginning that show you that uh, the message of the gospel isn't just a New Testament thing. These are the promises. These are the, uh, the prophets that have, have declared this message. They, the same message has been preached since man fell into sin. And Christ came walking in the garden in the cool of the day with the promise of the gospel. Uh, these, the message of the gospel is the same exact message that was given to Adam and Eve that is declared today and will be declared until the Lord returns. And so we'll focus on that uh, tonight, even in what often people slip through, like go through an introduction real quick until you can get to the, to the heart of it. There are things mentioned in this introduction that uh, are the setting, uh, the setting for the message 
that Paul declares in the book. So I trust that the Lord will at least take these thoughts and, and especially how the doctrine and the practical section have to, have to mesh. If you see someone in their practical Christian life, they're not walking with the Lord, there's a breakdown on, from the doctrinal section. If you're meditating and rejoicing in the doctrine, it will be seen in the life. You're not going to get someone who's living like the devil who's rejoicing in the doctrinal sections of this book. Either you're rejecting the one and it's seen in the other, not maybe not verbally rejecting it, saying, I, I, I don't believe in justification. You're not meditating upon it. You're going off into the world and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches is choking the word. It's seen in the practical aspects of life. When you get back to glorying in, in Christ and what he has done and rejoicing in sins forgiven, it can't help but be seen in the life. It can't help but be seen in the life. And so trust the Lord will, or will, will bless our our time that we're going to spend in the book of Romans, we've got uh, tonight, and then we have two Sundays in December uh, at this point. So we'll start our way down the, the longer version of the Romans road, the entire book, and trust that the Lord will bless our time together. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the gospel, and that the message of the gospel has has been given to us not only as the ground of our acceptance, but even the ground of our fellowship and our experience. And Lord, we pray that we will make time in the morning before the day even gets started to make ourselves happy in the Lord, as old George Mueller said. Father, we know that sometimes it's the singing of a hymn. Sometimes it's the meditating upon thy word. Sometimes it's a, a reminder from someone that gets our mind upon Christ. Help us to get ourselves happy and rejoicing in the Lord. We're convinced that the practical will come when the doctrine is being meditated upon. And so, Lord, help us at least to take that from this message this morning. That, that if we expect to live the Christian life the way that we're, we're, we're commanded to, that we have to be rejoicing in the work of Christ on our behalf. And so, Father, take us... From this place, rejoicing this morning, bring us back this evening with the expectation of hearing from thee. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.